Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is a joy, it's a privilege to, to be here with you all, to gather together, to encourage each other through the exercising of our gifts, to the glory of Christ, and to the edifying of the church. Amen? Amen. We're, um, it's been really an incredible time, uh, the last few weeks, taking a verse each week, and we've liked it so much, we've decided to do that for the rest of Deuteronomy. Um, on a rough calculation, I figure we'll be here through about mid-2040. So, um, so college students, if you come back for like a 10th anniversary graduation or something, we'll still be here. <laughs> so, um, Let's pray together. Father, it is good. It is good to gather together. We are so thankful that you have redeemed us through your son, Jesus Christ, from our sin and rebellion, and instead brought us into the kingdom of your son, where there is joy and where there is fellowship and where there is strength and grace for this life and there is promise for the life to come. Today we ask simply that you would let our plans go awry, that you would let our words fumble, that you would let the technology break down, if only you would show us yourself. We pray that Christ, Christ would be revealed to each heart here, and that we would know you the more and grow in love and fear of you, so that we might walk with you the way that you desire. So come and lead us today to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 5, uh, verses 23 through 33 today. Um, as we start, there are situations in life that leave an impression on us. And if I can get this to move on to our next slide. Hold on, I should probably turn it on first. That works. Um, growing up, uh, I grew up in Chicago, and usually once a year we'd go down during the summertime to visit my mom's family in Kentucky, rural Kentucky, out in the open, small cities and far apart. And I remember being a boy, four or five, maybe six years old, and for the first time really seeing stars, going outside, looking up, and from one end of the horizon all the way to the other end of the horizon, just loaded with stars. And I remember just looking straight up into all of it and almost just, just getting dizzy because there was just such a weight of all of this depth and immensity and space that was there. It left an impression on me. It was almost a fearful thing because of this some glimpse, some recognition of the, the just immensity of it. Sinai for Israel was intended to be an event much more than that, to leave an impression on Israel as a people of the God that they were entering into covenant with, into relationship with. And it was, in a sense, intended for them to fear. So today, Deuteronomy 5, the message is to have such a heart as this, to fear and follow the Lord. It really, it's calling us to learn uh, to learn to fear God so that we would commit ourselves to obeying all his commandments. And we're going to look at that in these two, two lenses, that we would fear God's person and follow God's path. So we're going to look, um, 
really the way that it works is verse 22 is kind of the closure to the Ten Commandments, right? So we've walked through each of them week by week, but they were just heard entirely at one go. Moses here in Deuteronomy is retelling that to Israel before they go into the land. And verse 22 is him kind of closing out, describing the Ten Commandments. Verses 23 through 27 is Israel's response of fear to what they've seen uh, revealed of God. 28 through 31 is God's response back, his affirmation of their response. And then that finishes this, this kind of retelling of Sinai. And then in verses 32 and 33, Moses exhorts Israel to the logical conclusion that they should obey all God's commandments. So we're going to look at uh, verses 23 through 27, or uh, really through 31 first, in fearing God's person. Look at verse 23 with me. We read there, And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. So Israel, after seeing the fire and the cloud on the mountain, and after hearing the law, they get their leaders together and they send them over to Moses. What are they, uh, what are they interested in? What do they say? Look at verse 24. It says, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fires we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. So, they respond to God's revelation with fear. Their main concern really is this. Why should we die? After we've seen all that's happening, if we continue to hear this, we're going to die. Why do, they, why do they respond this way? Well, they see something here. They saw the glory and greatness of the Lord. Through the fire and through God's voice, God was revealing something of his majesty and of his weight, the importance of who he is, and of the law that they are receiving. That was something that left a significant impression on them. And then there's this fire and, um, and voice. So three times they mention this fire. Fire is very dangerous. I don't know if you know that. Fire is very dangerous. And whenever it engulfs the entirety of the top of a mountain, that's not something that you really you know, feel like is nice and, and fun, and you're just around a campfire cooking s'mores. So... This is, this is significance that's there. They're concerned the fire will consume us. But more than that, more than the fire, they mention the voice. They mention the speaking. Now, it said earlier that he spoke with a loud voice. It's not just the quality of the voice that it was loud and authoritative. It was the content of what was there. Through the Ten Commandments, God was revealing himself, his character, he was showing that he was a holy and righteous and good God who searches the hearts of people. He was showing that he was merciful and compassionate to the needy, and he was calling his people to that. Israel recognized their sinfulness next to God. The comparison between an infinite and immeasurable holy God to the fading frailty of man would have been stark for them. 
So when they say, hey, why should we die? They're essentially saying, we've kind of pushed our luck this far. We're near a holy God. This is going to be dangerous. They recognize something of, of his character here. And so in verse 27, they ask Moses to go between them and God, to be a mediator there, to receive God's word and to bring it to them. Now, my initial reaction to that was, man, Israel, like always just wanting to kind of pull away from the Lord and they're just, they just don't get it. But note, they do commit. They say, you hear everything that God wants to speak. We will hear that and we will do it. And more than that, look at how God responds to their, their request here. Verse 28 says, And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. And more than that, he goes on to say, Oh, that they had such a heart as this, always, to fear me and keep my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. God affirms their response of fear. And more than that, he says he wishes they would continue in that response. Then in verse 30, um, he sends them back to their tents. And in verse 31, he tells Moses, you stay here and we'll do this. We'll go ahead and we'll explain the law to you and you take it to them. So he receives Moses as their mediator. So what is at the core of this passage? What is at the core of what the Lord is doing here? It's this idea here, that they would have such a heart as this to fear and to keep his commandments. Now, in today's day and age, we don't really like to talk about or think about or hear about fear, that we should have it. We have an aversion to that, and perhaps in in many ways rightly so. The overwhelming majority of times in the scripture that fear is talked about, it is an instruction do not fear. Do not be afraid. Okay, that is a biblical instruction for us, frequent. But we have to look at this and say, so what does God mean when he wants his people to fear him? We're going to take a little bit of a longer look. I think this needs to be explained and walked through the scripture a little bit more. So one, we do need to recognize there is improper fears for the Christian to have. So just briefly, we can think about different things that we're told not to fear, right? We're told not to fear men who can kill the body, but who cannot kill the soul in Matthew 10, verse 28. We're told not to be anxious or to fear about where our food or our clothing is going to come from, Matthew 6, 34. We're told not to fear the signs of the end of the times, right? Wars and rumors of wars and pestilence. We're told not to fear that, to be terrified of it in Luke 21, verse 9, and a whole host of other things that we're instructed not to fear. And probably in a good, um, good many of your, your minds right now, there's a verse that comes out in 1 John 4.18. It says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. This is incredibly instructive for us as believers. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, in his death for our sin and resurrection from the dead, you should have no fear of the day of judgment to stand before the Lord. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. Amen? That is a, an incredible encouragement. 
what 1 John 4 is driving at is this. As our love matures in Christ-likeness, that is a great evidence and assurance that we have been saved. So as that love matures, that confidence should push away any fear of condemnation before the Lord as we grow in that assurance. That should be something that is instructive and a great confidence, a great uh, encouragement for us as believers. But this verse is not saying that all kinds of fears are wrong for the Christian. So, what is it? What is the fear of God? We're going to have to take some time to establish that there is a good fear and what that is and what that looks like. Um, First off, we should note here, God desires it. He told Israel, oh, that you would have such a heart as this always. This is something God wants. Interestingly, I think uh, in Isaiah chapter 11, we read about the Messiah and the fear of the Lord. So Isaiah 7, uh, 11 verses 1 through 3 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Verse 3, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. When Christ came, the Holy Spirit made in him the fear of the Lord to be characteristic of who he was. And more than that, Jesus delighted in it. This was not something that was to fulfill all righteousness, but sure was a crummy task to kind of carry through. This was a cross to bear. Jesus delighted in the fear of the Lord. This is not something that goes away in the New Testament. We read that the church should walk in the fear of the Lord, like in Acts chapter 9, verse 31. It says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So not only is this something that the church, us as a people, should possess the fear of the Lord, when we have it, the gospel of Christ goes forth in the world and it multiplies the church. It builds up the church. We see in just a few examples here, 2 Corinthians 7.1, Philippians 2.12, 1 Peter 2.17 and Colossians 3.22, the church is instructed to live out their salvation with fear and to fear the Lord. That's just a small sampling of verses in the New Testament. So clearly, this is something good and right for believers to have, and it honors the Lord. Okay, so it's good. We ought to have it. What is it? Okay, we're going to look at a number of passages to try and begin to flesh out a picture of a godly fear of the Lord. So we're going to look at Psalm 112, verse 1. Um, I took the liberty of formatting it up on the screen a little bit so you can see some of the parallels. So bear with me on some of the formatting here. But we read there, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Notice here that fear and delight are put in parallel with each other. They're not directly interchangeable, but there is a strong relationship between them. The one who fears the Lord delights in his commandments. There's something to delight and fear that go together. 
Psalm 145, verses 19 to 20 says, He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears the cry, their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Note the parallel here. Those who fear him with those who love him. Again, not one-to-one directly interchangeable, but there is a strong relationship in the fear of God, the right fear of God, with love for God. Okay, So beginning to gain a little bit of something here, right? This is not about just terror and cowering. This is about delight and about love. Now, what does this look like? Where does it come from? We're going to look at a few passages that describe where does the fear of God come from. Jeremiah 33, verses 8 and 9. It says, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. I don't know about you, but that was not not what I was expecting to hear when I read those verses. Because of the goodness of the Lord, they would fear and tremble. Just stop and think about that for for a moment. What is it about the fear of God that responds to goodness? That responds to the sheer... Look look at this passage. There's nothing here besides forgiveness, goodness, prosperity, joy. And that will induce us to fear and tremble before the Lord? I think what is going on here is there is something when we come to see the character and works of God, the sheer greatness and magnitude of them is overwhelming. And is almost that kind of weak need pressure and weight of looking at the stars where you just say, I can't even soak it all in. This is so great that it causes us to experience an emotional, physical delight and overwhelmingness at the person of God. So it comes from the goodness of God. Jeremiah 10 verse 7 says, Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations... And in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. The wisdom of God causes fear, draws out fear in us. I have to stop and think about that. God's wisdom in orchestrating everything from the movement of nations throughout history down to the details and outworking of your life, all of that's there in his wisdom. He confounds the wisdom of the wise. His wisdom, when we stop and we ponder it, is overwhelming, and it causes us to fear. I'm just going to, I would love more time to walk through some of this, to walk through the promises of the new covenant and the heart that God would give his people. I'd love to walk through some of these verses. We don't have time for that, but I just want to put this up here. Fear responds to God's justice and wrath. Fear responds to God's holiness, responds to God's forgiveness, Right, Psalm 130, verse 4, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. You ever thought about that? The forgiveness of God, so overwhelming 
that would cause us to fear. Fear of God is a response to God as king and as victor over the nations. Hopefully, what this is doing is giving you some glimpse, some picture that godly fear stems from an overwhelming view of God's person. For the believer, it's as much a response to his goodness as it is to his severity. I really appreciate um, Michael Reeves in his book, Rejoice and Tremble, The Surprising Good News of the Fear of God. Uh, I've learned a great deal. That was a great companion as I was studying this over the last couple of weeks. But he does a good job, I think, in trying to tie these thoughts together when he says, right fear does not stand in tension with love for God. Right fear falls on its face before the Lord, but falls leaning toward the Lord. It is not as if love draws near and fear distances, nor is this fear of God one side of our reaction to God. It is not simply that we love God for his graciousness and fear him for his majesty. That would be a lopsided fear of God. We also love him in his holiness and tremble at the marvelousness of his mercy. True fear of God is true love for God defined. It is the right response to God's full-orbed revelation of himself in all his grace and glory. The fear of God, this is an amazing, amazing thing that we need to study and to consider and to cultivate in our lives. It's hard to kind of capture this. We're not used to thinking of the fear of God as being something part of the Christian life. So we really need to try and see things that help to picture it and capture it for us. One thing, so uh, the kids and I have been reading through the Chronicles of Narnia. We just finished all seven books the other week. Super fun. Um, But one thing I really appreciate about C.S. Lewis's depiction of Aslan, the Christ figure, is that every single time, not once, not twice, not a couple, every single time that Aslan appears, those who love him have a mingling of joy and an eagerness to be with him, and they also have a reverence and a fear. I think that's a good start at gaining a picture of the whole experience of being in the presence of God. Now, what is the... When, so, I guess the, the best way that I could then summarize it for you today is that the fear of God is a disposition of our heart which comes from seeing the overwhelming person and nature of the Lord that leads us to esteem him and treasure him and his will above all things. Why is God so adamant about this, so desirous of this for his people? Well, the fear of the Lord then becomes the basis, becomes the foundation upon which we are able to obey all his commandments, right? Even in the face of trial and persecution and temptation. In the second century, there was a man named Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna. Whenever he was in his mid-80s, around 86 years old, he was arrested by the Romans for his faith in Jesus Christ. He was taken to a stake to be burned alive. And whenever they were talking with him, they gave him an opportunity to recant. They said, hey, if you will curse Christ, we'll let you go. We'll be done. Well, it's said that he simply replied to that, 86 years I have served my Lord. Um, 86 years I've served him, and he has never done me wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? He's tied to a stake with torches around him about to be burned. 
How do you remain steadfast in that? The fear of the Lord. Listen to his response. He has never done me wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? That is a person overwhelmed with the goodness and the kindness and the grace of the Lord, and it caused him to be steadfast under trial. Amen? So let me ask you, brothers and sisters, do you find yourself overwhelmed by God? Or would underwhelmed be a more accurate description? God is no different than he has ever been. The same God who displayed himself with glory and greatness out of the fire and cloud and thick darkness out Mount Sinai is the same Lord of glory today. And let me tell you what Israel saw at Sinai was just a glimpse of his person, of what we can know of the Lord today as we walk with him. The fear of God is an aspect of Christ's character that grows in our hearts by degrees. You may think you possess very little of it right now, but by God's grace, it can abound more and more as we seek him. All right. So the question is, do we desire it? Is this something that we want? And if so, then how do we begin to grow in it? Just a few thoughts. One is, first and foremost, we need to study and meditate on God's word. We cannot rightly fear God if we do not know him. Too often, we're, we're too quick in our reading of the scripture. We're too cursory in our thinking. Oh, yeah, that looks, oh, that's great. That's real encouraging. Move it on. We need to stop and to consider and to meditate. Who is God revealing himself to be in his word? What acts has he done, both in the scripture and in our lives? And stop and ponder them. We need to think about the promises that he's given his plans for the future, and stop and consider them. Psalm 111 verse 2 says, Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. This is especially true of the work of Christ, the work of Christ on the cross. Uh, John Brown was a 19th century century Scottish theologian, and he wrote of this very thing, uh, saying, Nothing is so well fitted to put the fear of God, which will preserve men from offending him, into the heart as an enlightened view of the cross of Christ. There shines spotless holiness, inflexible justice, incomprehensible wisdom, omnipotent power, holy love. None of these excellencies darken or eclipse the other, but every one of them rather gives a luster to the rest. They mingle their beams and shine with united eternal splendor. Christ died for your sins. He rose again from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father with authority. He's brought you into newness of life. He loves you with an everlasting love. He leads you as a good shepherd and instructs you with his perfect wisdom. Does that not excite you to want to know him more, more of this God? And let me just offer as a bit of a, just a quick something you might do. Sing. Sing, not just here when we gather. In your personal devotions, bring along a hymn book, print out some lyrics, put them in your Bible, but sing. In times of studying God's word and in times of prayer, yes, I felt the Lord's presence, but also in times of singing and in looking to the Lord and just worshiping. So 
give it a try. Take it. I think that is a, a great way of continuing to just put on our hearts from a delight and an affection for the Lord to grow in the fear of Him. All right. So God desires for His people to have such a heart as this, ones that fear Him. And the heart that fears Him then becomes the basis for following God's path, for keeping His commandments. All right, so after Moses finishes the narrative about the giving of the law at Sinai, he concludes by exhorting Israel to be careful to keep God's commands. We're going to briefly go back to verse 22 because I think that the character of God's word is also an encouragement and a motivation for us to keep God's word. So if you want to look back at verse 22, we're going to go real quick um, through some of, these, some of these descriptions here. It says, These words the Lord spoke. This tells us the divine source of the law. This is God's law. We hear and obey God's word because in doing that, we hear and obey God. If we disobey, we disobey God and we'll be held accountable to him. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain. This tells us the intended recipients of the law. This was not a small group of elite class in Israel or some inside group. This was intended for everyone, young and old, rich and poor, women and men, educated, uneducated. The whole assembly of Israel was there and was intended to hear, to learn, to benefit from and obey God's word. Kids, um, younger folks, if I can have your attention for a minute. Anybody still with me? Awesome. Let me just say something real briefly to you we don't always get up here and say, hey kids, or hey teens, or hey college, hey college students. We don't always say that directly, but nonetheless, everything that is taking place here is as much for you as it is for anyone else. The gathering of God's people is not about adults. It's not about a special inside group. This is about the whole people of God gathering together. God wants you to be able to hear and to learn and to obey and to participate in what's happening here, to sing and learn God's word through song, to listen to the reading and teaching of God's word so that you can know more of who God is, to pray together, and as we go to the fellowship meal, to talk to people and to encourage them and to uh, ask them questions. You should be participants actively in this church gathering because the word of God goes to all the assembly. It says, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness, and with a loud voice. We touched on that briefly earlier, so I'm going to let that stand for the moment. And it says, and he added no more, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. This tells us something of the completeness and the foundational nature of the Ten Commandments for the law of God. They're compact, but they're broad, and they're the ground upon which the rest of the law is built. As we go in through the rest of Deuteronomy, um, there's kind of a pattern of following the order of the Ten Commandments as it expounds the laws for Israel. But more than that, I think this instructs us in something else. God gave them in stone to be received completely and without alteration. In the end, the word of God is enough for us to know him and to live for him without adding or taking away from it. And I'm just going to add on here, uh, we're in verse 22, but we're going to tag on the end of verse 33, which talks about the goodness of God's commands. I wish I had more time to get into this today, but 
there's a great motivation to keeping God's commands when we recognize they're not just true, they're not just right, they are a benefit and a blessing to us as God's people. So we read in verse 33, God gave it that you may uh, live, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. That's reiterated in numerous other places throughout Deuteronomy, but I appreciate the way it's stated in chapter 6, verse 24. It says, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always. So, verse 31, when, uh, when the Lord says, Hey, Moses, you come up and you hear all of the commands that I'm going to give to them. That finishes the recounting of Sinai. And then in verses 32 and 33, this is Moses now directly addressing the people of Israel and saying, be careful to obey all that God's given to you. Follow God's path. So he has these three commands, which essentially say the same thing, but slightly nuanced. And they're intended to drive this into our hearts. Let's look at these. The first one says, you shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. God calls us as his people to give careful attention to keep his commands. God expects our effort, empowered by his grace, to be put forth to keep his commands. Now, I should note uh, that he is merciful, he is patient, he is abounding in steadfast love. When we sin, so we should not run away from him when we sin, but instead we need to come back to him in repentance and in faith, and he will receive us and forgive us and lead us in grace. Amen? But that being said, the question still remains if we are being careful to keep God's commands or if we are being careless. He desires us to be careful. Then he says, you shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. There's a word picture here of a path or a journey on a road. So God's commands are the road markers. They show us which way we are to go. Walking on the path is obedience in that. To arrive at the destination that God desires, there's no shortcuts, there's no detours. To step off the path, whether to take a different direction or to avoid a hardship or an obstacle, is disobedience. We must stay on the road God has marked out for us. And then at the beginning of verse 33, he says, you shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you. We need to submit ourselves to the whole counsel of God as best as we can, not adding more, not taking away. We have not been given the liberty to review God's commands and decide which ones we think are reasonable or intelligible or helpful and then follow those ones. For us to be faithful to Christ, we cannot just obey the ones that are acceptable in today's culture, but ignore the ones that are difficult to do. We need to receive the whole of the commands and obey them. In part, this means that we should be a little bit more conscientious in our reading of Scripture and not favor certain parts over others. The heart that God desires for his people includes to keeping the whole of his commands. Um, the kids and I have been uh, reading this book, Dangerous Journey. So this is a, an abridged version of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And in it, John Bunyan pictures the Christian life as a path. It's a very 
strong biblical theme throughout uh, the Old Testament. And this is an allegory of the Christian life with Christian walking the path, the road to the celestial city. If you haven't gotten this, I would encourage, we've had some great conversations over this. Um, It's really wonderfully done. But there's a great part in it where Christian and his companion at the time, Hopeful, are tempted to go off the path. Let me read just a little bit for you. My kids were like, are you really going to do that during this sermon? I was like, yeah, we're going to do that. Um, So we read there, I beheld in my dream that they had not journeyed far, the road ahead being very rough and their feet very tender with with traveling. And then they became much discouraged. At this point, Christian spied a stile which led into a meadow and seemed to be a shortcut. Here's better going, he said. Come, good hopeful, let's climb over it. What if it leads us out of our way, asked Hopeful. That's not likely, said Christian. Look, uh, there's another man walking ahead of us. So over the stile they went, and Christian was well pleased that the path was easier on his feet. But in leaving the road, he had made a terrible mistake. For soon night came on, and it grew very dark. They completely lost sight of the pilgrim ahead. Did they but know it? His name was Vain Confidence. Suddenly they heard in the darkness a shriek followed by an eerie silence. Good brother, let's try to go back again, Christian urged Hopeful. But even as they tried to turn back, it started to rain and lightning and thunder in a very dreadful manner. Christian was completely lost, for the deluge had caused the waters to rise amain and wash away the path. They were even in great danger of being drowned had they not found a narrow ledge with an overhanging rock. Here they sheltered as best they could and waited for the dawn. And being tired out, they fell asleep. Leaving the path was not for their good. Not for their good. The heart that God desires for his people is to fear him and to keep his commandments. So, some closing thoughts on application for us. We read in Hebrews chapter 12 earlier about how we have not come to a mountain that can be touched that was smoking with fire. But instead, we've come to Mount Zion, to heavenly Jerusalem, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And what does the writer of Hebrews come to as the implication for this? Verse 25, he says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And then he concludes that passage by saying, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We need to give the more careful attention, even than Israel did to their law, because we've received a greater word through Jesus Christ in the gospel. I have to mention this again. Do you give yourself time to read and to study God's word personally? I'm super thankful that as a church, we teach about and we encourage and we model family worship. That is super good. That is super essential for us as as families seeking to be faithful in the home. I'm grateful for the way that we gather on Sundays, praying with each other in these things, reading the word of God, teaching it faithfully. But that is not a substitute for you going to the Lord and seeking him. We cannot keep God's commands if we do not know them. So we need to go and seek the Lord. We need to read his word. Second, do you think about God's commands throughout the day? 
Is that something that comes to your mind? I would encourage you this week, as you bump into different situations, ask yourself the question, what has God given in his word as a command that instructs me right now? So for instance, your brother or your sister does something to hurt you or offend you or irritate you. What do you do? All right, let's think. Hold on. What, what has God told us in his word? Okay, how about um, Ephesians or Colossians 3? Bearing with one another and forgiving one another, even as Christ has forgiven you, so you also must do. What about uh, Romans 12, verse 18? Hey, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Okay, there's some commands. Okay, now that's given me some instruction and direction. I can keep that. What about at work? Your manager assigns the task that nobody wants to do to you. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond to that? All right, hold on. Let's think. What, what's some instruction that's been given? What about Colossians 3? Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Philippians 2, verse 14. Do all things without complaining and disputing. That's some good instruction for a situation like that. What if you're having a conversation with a classmate or a coworker or a neighbor and things start to turn into the spiritual conversation? You have an opportunity to, to press a little bit further and to talk about the things of God. You're going to step out and walk with the Lord in that or you're going to stay comfortable? All right, well, okay, what has the Lord commanded us for this? What about 2 Timothy chapter 1? Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. What about as, as parents? You know, it can be wearying sometimes whenever we have situations with our, our kids and we're worn out and an attitude problem just continues to persist and we get tired of instructing and being patient and disciplining. What do we do? All right, hold on. What has the Lord instructed us? How about Ephesians 6? Don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Or Galatians 6. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So I'd encourage you to think this week, as you bump into different situations, stop and ask yourself, what has God commanded? What has God given us for us to live by for our good? And lastly, I have to ask, do you have brothers and sisters that you're walking along this path with. We need other Christians who are mature in the faith to help us along the way. People who we can watch and imitate their lives, who will pray with us and encourage us, who will instruct us and correct us. People who will teach us to obey all that Christ has commanded us to do. God is not intended for us to do this by ourselves. That's why he calls us into a church we need to be deliberate to encourage and exhort and strengthen one another with the word of God and all the more as we see the day approaching, Hebrews 10.25. This is the heart that God desires for his people, that we would fear him and follow him. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your mercy to us. We are so thankful that you are not a small God, but our great and mighty, worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing because you are so great and overwhelming beyond anything that we can scrutinize. 
We pray that today you would show us more of yourself, that we would have, that we would taste and see that the Lord is good and that we would have a greater delight and fear of you, that we would encourage one another in that. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.